Luke chapter 21, verses 5 through 38, verses 5 and 6. And as some spake of the temple, how it was adorned with goodly stones and gifts, he said, As for these things which ye behold, the days will come in which there shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Burkett notes, Our blessed Savior, being now ready to depart from the temple, nevermore after this entering into it, and his disciples showing him with wonder and admiration the magnificent structures and buildings thereof, apprehending that in regard of its invincible strength it could not be destroyed, not considering that sin will undermine and blow up the most magnificent and famous structures. For sin brings cities and kingdoms as well as particular persons to their end. Not one stone, says Christ, shall be left upon another, which threatening was exactly fulfilled after Christ's death, when Titus, the Roman emperor, destroyed the city, burnt the temple, and Turner Rufus, the general of his army, plowed up the very foundation on which the temple stood. Thus was the threatening of God fulfilled. Jeremiah 26.18 Zion shall be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem shall become a heap. Learn hence, one, that sin has laid the foundation of ruin in the most flourishing cities and kingdoms. Jerusalem, the glory of the world, is here by sin threatened to be made a desolation. Two, that the threatenings of God are to be feared, and all shall be fulfilled, whatever appearing improbabilities there may be to the contrary. Tis neither the temple's strength nor beauty that can oppose or withstand God's power. Verse 7. And they asked him, saying, Master, but when shall these things be? And what sign will there be when these things shall come to pass? Burkett notes, A double question is here propounded to our Savior, namely, when the destruction of Jerusalem should be, and what would be the signs of it? From whence learn what an itching curiosity there is in the best of men to know futurities, and to understand things that shall come to pass hereafter, and when that hereafter will come to pass. O oh, happy word, if we were as forward to obey the declarations of God's revealed will as we are to pry into the hidden counsels of his secret will. Tell us, says the disciples, when shall these things be? Verses 8 through 11. And he said, Take heed that you be not deceived, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and the time draweth near, go ye not therefore after them. But when ye shall hear of wars and commotions, be not terrified. For these things must first come to pass, but the end is not by and by. Then he said unto them, Nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and great earthquakes shall be in diverse places, and famines, and pestilences, and fearful sights, and great signs shall there be from heaven. Burkett notes, Observe here, Christ does not gratify his disciples' curiosity, but acquaints them with their present duty, namely, to watch against deceivers and seducers who should have the impudence to affirm themselves to be Christ, saying, I am Christ. Some Christ's personal, or the Messiah, other Christ's doctrinal, affirming their erroneous opinions to be Christ's mind and doctrine. Take heed that you be not deceived, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ. Observe farther the signs which our Savior gives of Jerusalem's approaching destruction, 
namely the many broils and commotions, the civil disorders and dissensions that should be found among the Jews immediately before. Ye shall hear of wars and commotions, and see fearful sights and great signs from heaven. Joseph declares that there appeared in the air chariots and horsemen skirmishing, and that a blazing star in fashion of a sword hung over the city for a year together. Hence learn that war, pestilence, and famine are judgments and calamities inflicted by God upon a sinful people for their contempt of Christ and gospel grace. Ye shall hear of war, famine, and pestilence. Verses 12 through 19. But before all these things, they shall lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and into prisons, being brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. And it shall turn to you for a testimony. Settle it, therefore, in your hearts, not to meditate before what ye shall answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. And you shall be betrayed both by parents and brethren, and kinfolk and friends, and some of you they shall cause to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but there shall not a hair on your head perish. In your patience possess ye your souls. Burkett notes, Our Savior here goes on in giving further signs of Jerusalem's destruction. He declares, 1. The sharp persecution that should fall upon the apostles themselves. They shall lay their hands on you and persecute you. Learn hence that the keenest and sharpest edge of persecution is usually turned upon the ambassadors of Christ and falls heaviest on the ministers of God. He acquaints them, too, that for preaching his holy doctrine they should be brought before kings and rulers, but advises them not to be anxiously thoughtful or exceedingly solicitous what they should say, for it should be suggested to them by the Holy Ghost what they should say in that hour. Learn hence that though the truth of Christ may be opposed, yet the defenders of it shall never be ashamed. For rather than that they should want a tongue to plead for it, God himself will prompt them with his Holy Spirit and suggest such arguments to them as all their enemies shall not be able to gainsay. I will give you a mouth and wisdom. Observe 3. How he describes the bitter enmity of the world against the preachers of the gospel to be such as would overcome and extinguish even the natural affection of nearest relations. Ye shall be betrayed both by parents and brethren. Grace teaches us to lay down our lives for the brethren, but corruption in general, and enmity to the gospel in particular, will put brother upon taking away the life of brother and cause parents to hate and persecute their own bowels. Observe lastly our Savior's admonition. In your patience possess ye your souls. There are three degrees of Christian patience. The first consists of silent submission to God's will. The second, in a thankful acceptation of God's fatherly rod. The third, in serious cheerfulness under sorrowful dispensations, rejoicing in tribulation, and counting it all joy when we fall into diverse temptations. By this patience we possess our souls. As faith gives us the possession of Christ, so patience gives us the possession of ourselves. An impatient man is not in his own hand, for what title soever we have to our own souls, we have no possession of them without patience. In your patience possess ye your souls. Verses 20-28 through And when ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh, 
Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let them which are in the midst of it depart out, and let not them that are in the countries enter thereinto. For these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. For there shall be great distress in the land, and wrath upon this people. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles, until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And there shall be signs in the sun, and in the moon, and in the stars, and upon the earth distress of nations, with perplexity, the seas and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear, and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of heaven shall be shaken, and then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. Burkett notes, The sense is this, As soon as ye shall see the Roman army appear before the city of Jerusalem, called by St. Matthew and St. Mark the abomination of desolation, that is, the army which is such an abomination to you and the occasion of such desolation wherever it goes, then let everyone that values his own safety fly as far and as fast as he can, as Lot fled from the flames of Sodom, and be glad if by flight he can save his life, though he will lose all besides. Learn thence that when Almighty God is pouring forth his fury upon a sinful people, it is both a lawful and necessary duty by flight to endeavor to shelter ourselves from the approaching calamity and desolation. When you see Jerusalem, compassed with armies, flee to the mountains. Observe farther the dreadful relation that our Savior here gives of those desolating calamities which were coming upon Jerusalem, partly from the Roman army without, and partly from the seditions and fractions of the zealots within, who committed such outrages and slaughters that there were no less than 1,100,000 Jews slain, and 97,000 taken prisoner. They that bought our Savior for 30 pence were now themselves sold 30 for a penny. And now the temple itself becomes a sacrifice, a whole burnt offering, and was consumed to ashes. Observe lastly, what encouragement Christ gives to all his faithful disciples and followers. He bids them look up and lift up their heads when these calamities came upon others. Look up with confidence and joy for your redemption, salvation, and deliverance then approaches. God had a remnant which he designed should survive that destruction, to be a holy seed. These are called upon to look up with cheerfulness and joy when the hearts of others were failing them for fear. And thus it shall be at the general day of judgment, of which Jerusalem's visitation was a type. Lord, how will the glory and terror of that day dazzle the eyes and terrify the hearts of all the enemies of Christ, but delight the eyes and rejoice the hearts of all that love and fear him, that serve and obey him. Then may the friends of Christ look up and lift up their heads, for their full redemption draweth near. Verses 29 through 33. And he spake to them a parable. Behold, the fig tree, and all the trees, when they now shoot forth, you see and know of your own selves that summer is now nigh at hand. So likewise ye, when you see these things come to pass, know ye that the kingdom of God is nigh at hand. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass away till all be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, 
but my word shall not pass away. Burkett notes, In these words, our Savior declares the certainty of his coming to visit Jerusalem for all her barbarous and bloody cruelty towards himself, his prophets, and apostles. He is pleased to set forth this by the solemnitude of the fig tree, whose beginning to bud declares the summer at hand. Thus our Savior tells them that when they should see the aforementioned signs, they might conclude the destruction of their city and temple to be near at hand. And accordingly, some of that generation then living did see these predictions fulfilled. Learn that God is no less punctual in the execution of his threatenings upon incorrigible sinners than he is faithful in the performance of his promises towards his own people. The truth and veracity of God is as much concerned to execute his threatenings as it is to fulfill his promises. Verses 34 to 36. And take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your heart be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and the cares of this life, and so that day come upon you unawares. For as a snare shall it come among all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch ye, therefore, and pray always that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass, and to stand before the Son of Man. Burkett notes, Here our Lord cautions his disciples against the distemper and indisposition of mind, as may render them unfit and unready for his coming and appearance, and to take heed of two dangerous sins, namely voluptuousness and earthly-mindedness, which above any other sins will indispose us for the duty of watchfulness. There is a threefold reason why our Savior forewarns us of these sins, with reference to the day of judgment. One, because they are certain prognostics of the day of judgment approaching. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall the coming of man be. Two, because they do not only foretell, but hasten the coming of Christ, to see the world drowned in voluptuousness and earthly-mindedness, in security and sensuality, is not only a sign to foretell, but a sin that hastens judgment, and pulls down vengeance upon a wicked world. Three, Christ bids us be aware of these sins with reference to the day of judgment, because these sins beget in men a profane spirit of scoffing and deriding at the notices of Christ's appearing to judgment. Second Peter 3, 3 and 4. In the last days there shall come scoffers walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? Our Savior, having thus warned them of these sins, he next exhorts them to watchfulness. Watch ye, therefore, for as a snare that day will come upon you, that is, very suddenly and very unexpectedly. A snare has a threefold property, to catch suddenly, to hold sure, to destroy certainly. Our Lord's coming to Jerusalem was very unexpected, and his coming to us by death and judgment will steal upon us if we are not watchful. Watch ye then, for our Lord will come. At what hour he will come cannot certainly be known. There is no time in which we can promise or assure ourselves that our Lord will not come. The time of our whole life is little enough to prepare for his coming. Our preparation for will be no acceleration or hastening of our Lord's coming. And oh, how dreadful will his coming be if we be found off our watch and altogether unready for his appearance. Appear we must in judgment, but shall not be able to stand in the judgment. See Christ we shall as a judge but not behold him as a redeemer. Verses 37 and 38. And in the daytime he was teaching in the temple, and at night he went out and abode in the mount that is called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning 
to him in the temple, for to hear him. Burkett notes, Our Lord had extorted his disciples in the foregoing verses to diligence and prayer. Here he sets an example of both before them, busying himself in God's service all the day, and at night spending much time in prayer. In the daytime he was in the temple preaching. In the evening he was on the Mount of Olives praying. Lord, what an example of indefatigable zeal and diligence hast thou set before thy ministers and members. Oh, that when our Master comes, we may be found working, our people watching, and both they and we waiting for the joyful coming of our Lord and Savior. Amen.